welcome to episode 59 of Tea or Books. I'm Simon. I'm Rachel. And in this episode, we'll be looking at holiday reading, easy or hard, which we'll explain soon. <laughs> <laughs> That's not a great way to explain that. <laughs> um, and two novels by Shelley Jackson. We have always lived in the castle and the haunting of Hale House. Um, and first, I will quickly say that this episode is dedicated to Joanna, uh, courtesy of her husband, Joel, who uh, is celebrating their anniversary of their engagement. And he told us how much she enjoyed Teal Books and asked if we would do that. So this one's for you, Joanna. Thanks very much for your support. Yeah, thank you. And happy anniversary of your engagement. Yes, absolutely. Um, or step it up, other husbands who listen to this <laughs> <laughs> haven't been celebrating their wife's engagement <laughs> anniversary. <laughs> um, Rachel, how are you? What have you been up to and what are you reading? I'm good, thank you. Um, I'm feeling quite pleased with myself today because I finished the first 3,000 words of my dissertation that I have to send Ooh, in. Oh, well done. Um, yeah, so that feels like a weight off my mind. Um, and I've allowed myself a bit of a break from the Brontes. Um, so I finished reading last night The Mermaid and Mrs. Hancock, which oh, I had yes. to back burner for a while, which I absolutely love. So I do highly recommend that. Um, I don't think it's out in America just yet, but I think it will be coming out shortly. Um, and it's a story about, it's set in the 18th century, which is not a period I normally read about, actually. No. Uh, so it's been a bit of a departure for me. Um, and it's set in London, and it's about um, the the meeting of two worlds, the world of a man called Mr. Hancock. He works, um, he lives in Deptford and is in the shipping industry. And then... Um, uh, this, uh, I can't think of her name, I feel like Angelica, Angelica Neal, um, who is a very famous courtesan mm. and, um, and a mermaid who brings them together. It seems like a strange and kind of <laughs> absurd plot that I thought was going to be very gimmicky, but actually it really works and it's quite a touching story. I really enjoyed it. Oh, good, I'm glad. So I was really pleased, uh, pleased with that. So um, I don't know what I'm going to read next, actually, because um, I'm moving in about a month, hopefully. Mm-hmm. I went to visit my flat yesterday, which is being destroyed <laughs> um, internally, and I was worried that nothing had been done, and I went yesterday to measure the windows for curtains, um, and I was like, oh, it's I opened the door, and I was like, this is actually a building site, and oh, I, no. <laughs> I can't get to the windows. Uh, but it, in a good way. And of course, yeah. It, stuff is happening. So hopefully in a month I will be moving, which means the most exciting thing ever, for the first time in my whole adult life, all of my books will be in the same place. Yay. It and is I amazing. And I will read whatever I want. It is great. It's going to be yeah. awesome. <laughs> yeah. So so that's exciting news from, from my end. What about you? Well, since you last spoke, I've been to Hey On Why. Oh yes, I saw this post. You were very naughty in here. I was very good. <laughs> in as much as I only bought books, I really need to. <laughs> so I bought twenty-one books. Um, you can see all, all the books I bought um, on circular book posts a, a, a week or so ago. Um, I found some Beverly Nichols and some E.F. Benson. That was great. But um, I, I was. I, not just picking things up at random. Normally I just look mm. at things and think, oh, this might be good, I'll take this home. And this time I was just like, I'm just going to get things if I really want them. But turns out I really want quite a lot of books. <laughs> <laughs> what are you going to do? Yeah. <laughs> it's my first time at the festival. I've not been to the festival before. Um, oh. I only saw one thing. I, I saw an uh, interview with John Sopel that was really good, a political journalist. Um, I say really good. It was all about Donald Trump and it was quite terrifying. But he yeah. was <laughs> but very entertaining at the same time. Um yeah, uh, and yeah, I hadn't realised quite how big the, the area of the festival is, or in fact that it wasn't in the main town, so it's all this sort of tent city on the outskirts of the town. Um, and was it very busy? That part was really busy, but the bookshops, thankfully, weren't, well, thankfully for me, not so much for them, weren't <laughs> too busy. There was definitely more people than than previous times I've been, but it was. I was a bit worried I wouldn't be able to see the bookcases <laughs> for, for people, but it wasn't like that. Now, Simon, for people who haven't been to Hay on Y, who, who might be interested, because um, I'm moving mm. one of them, 
which uh, are there any particular bookshops that you would recommend? Absolutely. So every time I go, sadly, there are slightly fewer bookshops. And mm. certainly when I started going about 15 years ago, there were a lot more. But the two, yeah, I think the two that I really like are Richard Booth's bookshop and the cinema bookshop. So okay. the cinema bookshop is so called because it is in a converted cinema rather than it <laughs> having particular film focus. But um, and Richard Booth is in a lovely old building, and Richard Booth is the is the guy who set it up in the first place. The whole the whole bookshop town. Oh right. Um, so yeah, these the, I guess the biggest bookshops, which is probably why I like them the most. Um, yeah, and those the, those are the ones you definitely need to make a beeline for at some point. And there's also Murder and Mayhem, which is a detective fiction only bookshop, which is sounds amazing. Exciting. Yeah. <laughs> So my friends uh, spent much of their time, I think. Well, I mean, I do intend on going. Once I'm going to have a car from this summer, which is exciting. Very nice. Um, which means I'll actually be able to get out and about more, because it's not always easy to get to places on the train. It's impossible to get to Hamway without a car, really. Yeah. It's pretty, yeah. Um, and the book I'm reading at the moment, uh, or one of them, is Dennis McHale's By Auction. Oh! Yeah. Is it good? Book. I'm enjoying it so far. So it's... I think it's one of his last novels, and he wrote an awful lot of novels. Yes, he did. Yeah, so it's, it's from 1949, and it's um, it's about a uh, house which is being all the all the contents being auctioned off, and there's the last son of the family who's only in his 30s, I think, at that point, but he's there to superintend it being sold off from different objects, reminding him of different things in his past. Then you get a scene where he flashbacks to that part, etc. But it's good fun. I'm enjoying it. I you know, I just I've never read anything other than um, Greenery Street because I just find his books so hard to get a hold of. But you seem to find them everywhere. <laughs> well, that one I've actually had for a long, long time and I've never read. So finally reading it, and I think it's the first one that I've read apart from Greenery Street because the other ones I've listened to because they were so few of them. Bizarrely, you can get audiobooks for even if they're much harder to find. Why? Oh. So, and then I borrowed one for um, Ian Felicity, the sequel to Greenery Street, from my friend. Yeah, I'm really jealous of that. Yeah, I'm quite jealous of that. I almost didn't give it back. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, um, The Majestic Mystery and um, Shelby Abbey, I think, uh, are uh, books by him that I listened to. And The uh, Majestic Mystery is a, murder, is a detective novel, and that was good fun. Although, you know, it made no sense at all. Much like <laughs> much garden age detective fiction. <laughs> Um, but I enjoyed it. And yeah, this one was fun. I read it in a, a National Trust property on the way down to Chichester, which is where I was this weekend. Um, oh, you're at the conference. I was at a conference, the British Women Writers 1930-1970 conference, which was great. Um, although you know that the further we get away from 1930 and the nearer we get to 1970, the more uncomfortable I get. <laughs> <laughs> and I was talking about Guide Your Daughters by Diana Tutton. And how did the talk go? Yeah, it went well, thanks. I was mostly pleased that I finished writing it on time. <laughs> at one point, it looked <laughs> yeah. unlikely. But, so I guess I, when were we discussing this last weekend? And, yeah. I, and I said, shouldn't you start writing? And you were like, mm, <laughs> yeah. probably, probably I should, actually. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I finished it with about half an hour to spare before the, my la the last time I could possibly print it. I had visions of having to like read it off my phone or something, but thankfully it didn't come to that. <laughs> well, good for you. Thank you. <laughs> and yeah, next year the conference is hopefully going to be in Hull, so hopefully see you there, Richard. I'll be there with my car. Yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> can take you to Hull and back. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have always wanted to visit where Philip Larkin was a librarian, so, you know. Okay. Put Hull on the map. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> so Talking about travelling. Oh, yes, all very nice. Yeah. I saw my opportunity and I went for it. <laughs> um, keep going, yes. We are. We had decided to do a different topic, and then we just literally before we started decided that we probably shouldn't do it because neither of us knew much about either yeah. of them. So um, we've decided to discuss on the theme of it being the summer finally um, whether we use our holidays, whether that be in the summer or other times. Um, to read books that are hard going that we've been saving up for the time when we've got dedicated time to devote to them or whether we prefer to take trashier books than we would normally read on holiday with us to get us in that absent-minded relaxed holiday state yeah so simon do you want to start off discussing sure yeah and apologies if we've done this one before we think we haven't but we could but we could be wrong well you know what it's going to be a different discussion probably yeah. than it was before, even if so. we have but i think yeah. we haven't um i 
um, do tend, I think, broadly to go for slightly longer, slightly harder things. And this whole phenomenon of beach literature, which, you know, or airport novels, mm. or, um, which, you know, tend stereotypically towards the trashier or to the light, lighter, you know, you might pick up a romance, light romance novel or, or even a detective novel or something. I've never really understood why that would be what people consider holiday reading because I, I always think it's a great opportunity. Um, if you're not going to work every day, you've just got as long as you want in the day to read unless you've got you know, troublesome people with you who don't think that holidays are just about reading, but that's another, <laughs> another thing. Um, <laughs> it, you've got more opportunity to sit down something that needs a bit more concentration or needs a bit more of unter- uninterrupted reading time. Um, I, I'm not, like, w- taking down my copy of Finnegan's Wake every time I go on holiday, but, <laughs> but it is a time where I think, oh, maybe I will read something that's 400, 500 pages, whereas normally um, I would steer clear of that. But um, there, there probably are exceptions, in, in, but I've been intrigued to hear your initial thoughts as well well i think for me holidays are quite often actually i don't get much chance to read because i tend to do city breaks Mm. Um, and obviously i'm out and about and exploring places um but if i do have a beach holiday i normally take with me what i like is to take loads of books Mm-hmm. So I tend to choose shorter books um, and I like to whip books that I can whip through quite quickly. Um, okay. Not necessarily ones that are, aren't intellectually demanding, um, but they would be ones that perhaps I've been meaning to read for a while and I know that they won't take me very long to read so I can read several back to back. The problem with that is that they all tend to blur into one. Um, but for example, I might take things like Elizabeth Taylor on holiday with me. I might take, um, Dorothy Ripple on holiday. I might take, um, Virginia Woolf, something like that, something slim. Um, and I don't tend to take meteor books with me, largely because I don't want to carry them. Hmm, true. Um, but also because I like to read happy books when I'm on holiday. Okay, is that just because you want to be in a happy holiday mood? Yeah, and I like to kind of feel, I like books that make me feel like um, a sense of possibility and excitement and because I always like holidays are at the times when I like to kind of make decisions and um, for me a change of scene is an opportunity to reflect on things and to make decisions about changes I might like to make in my life. So I quite like to, to read books that have those sorts of messages in them and storylines in them so that they inspire me. I don't know why that is, but it's just... Well, that's nice. I mean, I think it's not quite the same, but I will tend to try and take authors that I either have enjoyed before or feel very likely that I will enjoy them because I want to make sure that it's, I'm not taking too much of a gamble on a holiday and then I'm separated yeah. by, you know, however many hundred miles from my books when I think... <laughs> It'd be awful if you're trapped with a book you're hating and nothing else. <laughs> Particularly yeah. if you're going somewhere that you know they may not have a lot of English bookshops or whatever. Yeah. Um, so I'm trying, to th- I'm trying to think. I will, if I'm going on a plane, I'll take a shorter book for the plane, and then I do like to have a few with me, depending on how long I'm away for. Um, so it might be because one... you never know. Exactly, and you want to have the choice. Um, yeah. So it might be one long one, and then a few others just in case they're on the outside, and then. I'm assuming most places I go, I'm likely to buy books whilst I'm there as well. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's inevitable, really. And that's actually one of the things I liked doing on this recent Hay and Why holiday. So I was, I was away from the Friday to Monday, so it was a no, not a long holiday, but it was more than just a day trip. <laughs> Can I just say, that makes you sound like a Downton Abbey character. <laughs> I had a Friday what to is Monday. a weekend? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Rachel, I'm classy. Come join me here. Come on. <laughs> oh, dear. Uh, um... I wish my weekend was Friday to Monday. That'd be great. <laughs> but but uh, I like if I'm going somewhere where I'm buying a lot of books, start reading one of those books whilst I'm on holiday. Because yeah. otherwise they'll just all go back on the shelves and then I won't read them for a while. No, that's true. So I did start reading Compton McKenzie's Buttercups and Daisies. Um, that sounds like a lovely book. Yeah, well, yes. I mean, it's a really good book. It's, but it's not quite as idyllic as it sounds. It's oh. sort of a more satirical title, I guess. Um, it's about a man who decides... 
um, in a sort of well-meaning but fairly tyrannical way that he's going to buy <laughs> a, a cottage in the countryside and his wife and two sons and daughter can all move there and he's got these sort of visions of pastoral ideals and it all turns out to be rather more um, ca- catastrophic than he's anticipating. But it's very funny, I really enjoyed it. Um, yeah, so yeah, I thought it's nice that way I can... Um, it's, it's sort of those books I've ordered have become part of the holiday experience, not just... Um, things to go on the shelves afterwards yeah I, I agree I think it's nice to I always try like to try and buy a book as a souvenir of somewhere if I'm in a country that's I can buy English books in. Mm-hmm. I mean if I'm in France I'll buy a French book because I can normally manage to just about make it out but um <laughs> other languages no but I was just in Venice last week and um I took I had to take my enormous biography of the Brontes with me which is literally <laughs> enormous and it's a hardback um so, and I kept, it was, I was staying in this very fancy resort and people kept kind of staring at me the whole time because they were like, what is she reading? <laughs> and then on, on the plane, I even heard somebody say, God, that girl's reading a huge book about the Bronte. And I was <laughs> tone of disdain. I was like, oh no, the oh, shame. They, they, it was just, you know, hidden admiration is what it was. Well, I hope so. While they were reading their like nice trashy books, but. Um, I wouldn't ever normally take a book like that with me on holiday. And I have to say, I've actually found some of my favourite books on holiday. So um, books like Illyrian Spring, which I adore, A Favourite of the Gods by Sybil Bedford, um, uh, and The Enchanted April by um, Elizabeth of Armin. All those sorts of books have been books I've, I've often, I think I've often first read them on holiday. Mm. And they're they're all set in holiday-style donate uh, places or, yeah, or about yeah, yeah. holidays. And I, I love those books also so much because I think I associate them with the memory of being on holiday, which I really like. Um, oh, definitely. That does make a difference, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. And I just I love books that take me to another place, so I think I often quite look for that as well when I'm reading a book when I'm on holiday. I like to read books that are set in sort of holiday destinations it's just and I think unconsciously I do it because I never really actively think oh I'll take this book because it's set in Italy or I'll take this book because it's set where I'll just be like oh this looks this looks fun and relaxing and it's a nice story and then I take it with me and then I'm like oh wow this has so many parallels with my yeah (laughs) um because I do know people who will you know but read a book about Italy if they're going to Italy etc yeah uh, and I think uh, when I went to Canada last year and I knew I was going to Stephen Leacock's house, I did read something by Stephen Leacock on the plane to, because it had been a little while since I'd read. Actually, I think I read one the year before, but it had been, been a bit of a while. So I thought um, that'd be nice just to refresh my memory of him. But in general, I don't think I do. Um, yeah, I can't think of, of many occasions when I have decided to read a book about the country. I'll often buy a book about the country when I'm there a novel that's set there or something or or something by say when yeah. I was in Siena I bought a book um by an Italian whose name who was it maybe it's Italo Cavino or someone but yeah. um yeah uh I just haven't won't often have been prepared enough in advance to, <laughs> to to do um my my homework no I'm not and I I would like to be but I think I know some people who will only read books set in the country they're going to either before they're on holiday or while they're on holiday but I think it's, um, I think holiday reading for some people, it's the only reading that they do. That's a really good point, actually. I hadn't thought about that. And so I think for some people who aren't readers, and I do, I'm not, I, I'm sure I'm not the, I don't need to feel ashamed of saying this because I'm sure lots of people listening will be the same. I'm very snobby about the people who go and buy the books in the, the newspaper shop <laughs> at the airport. And I always look at them and think, oh, gosh, you know, they look terrible. And it's always terrible bestsellers. But for for people who perhaps aren't readers and who don't really have any particular type of of book or author that they feel particularly passionate about, I think it's quite nice that, you know, when they're on holiday, they they feel like reading is something they want to do. And they choose a book that I feel that I suppose they feel comfortable with because – if you don't read very often, I suppose you, you're just reading for escapism rather than actually reading for looking for a beautiful writing or a particular type mm-hmm. of plot or something else. Yeah, that is an interesting thought because I 
I mean, I can't quite get my head around the idea of reading not being something one does every day. But, yeah. but, but yes, I suppose it's for me like, what do I do on holiday that I don't do the rest of the time? Hmm. I don't know, go to National Trust properties or something. But, um, oh, I go to National Trust yeah. properties all the time. <laughs> do I do do that increasingly? I mean, I just go on holiday to read. <laughs> but, yeah. um, but yes, depending on who I'm with, it's either allowed or not allowed. Like when we went to Canada, my brother made a, a Excel spreadsheet of activities so that I wouldn't just read the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> That's very organised. Yeah, it was. And uncharacteristically organised, in fact. Um, but talking about... Uh, your like your Bronte biography. I do remember, uh, and I might have said before, when I went to the Philippines for a month, the only book I brought with me was the complete work of Shakespeare. <laughs> so, so it was a bit of a cultural mishmash. And I should say the reason I did that is because it was between the second and third years of my undergraduate degree, and I was supposed to read all of Shakespeare. Um, and I thought if I've only got that book, then I will read quite a lot of it at least. <laughs> but um, it did feel odd bouncing around in the back of a jeepney, um, reading Taming of the Shrew. Simon. <laughs> shame. Yeah, and only re- only recently I managed to read, as I mentioned last time, I managed to finally read a Filipino author, which had been my intention at the time. But ten years or twelve years late, better than never. Well, exactly. I can't say I've ever read any Filipino authors, so you've done better than me. There you go. <laughs> but I think you know, I, I don't think I'm adverse to reading things that are hard on holiday. I have taken hard books on holiday when I've had to. Um, like, I mean, the Brontes isn't hard. It's just, you know, it's, it's difficult reading factual stuff when you're mm. trying to relax. Um, and, you know, last summer I had to read The Origin of Species and Middlemarch and things like that. So, you know, needs must sometimes. Not quite. Um, <laughs> but I think I should imagine for most people the default is to read something easy because the whole point of being away is that you can switch your brain off, no? I guess so. Um, I suppose that if it is just because you want to read to unwind or to relax, then that does make sense. Um, and if it is the only thing that you're likely to be reading, I, I would be intrigued to know what other people who, you know, other bibliophiles do on holiday because I guess I might take a couple of Christie's along with me or something. But, um, but yeah, generally it just seems like such a great opportunity to read un- uninterruptedly. Um, yeah, I don't know, but um, I mean, it also depends how I'm travelling. I guess if I'm, I've done a few holidays where it's all on public transport with backpacks and stuff. It's been a while, but I did do that <laughs> quite um, sometimes. And then it would definitely be smaller books, or you know, if there was a lot of text on the page, that was great because it meant there would be lighter to carry and that sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, it does depend. If you're taking, if you are going to be. Uh, only, for example, trying to take carry-on luggage when you're taking the plane as well. You don't want to take too much stuff. I mean, Kindles obviously have made life easier on that front. Yes, um, there'll be people yelling at the podcast right now. I'm like, yeah. just put it on in your Kindle. It's like, well, I'm sorry, I can't. Well, we, we get that, but we, <laughs> the reason why we have a problem is because we have so many books we haven't read. We need I mean, to try and read them. I know, um, yes. <laughs> So it's, yeah, it's difficult, I think, as well. Like For me, if I'm driving somewhere, then it's fine. I can just take what, however much yeah, stuff I yeah. want. So I just shove it in the boot. Um, but there are types of holidays that lend themselves to relaxing and reading. I mean, last summer, we, I had a lovely holiday in Scotland where we had an Airbnb place and most evenings we were just chilling and reading. Um, but other times, you know, when you're on holiday and you're going to restaurants or you're going out every night and you're staying with friends and you're doing lots of stuff, you don't really have as much time to read. So the only time you're going to have to read is perhaps on the journey to and from. Um, so, like, for example, when I was in America earlier last month, I mean, the only time I had to read was on the plane. Mm-hmm. The other times I was just, like, crazy busy doing loads of stuff. So it wasn't really a reading holiday. And I think I took another Charlotte Bronte biography with me on the plane. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yes, on a plane, I do have to really bring something that I'm desperate to read. Otherwise, I will just watch trashy films. Oh, well, I stop watching trashy films anyway. I mean, who can say no to Jumanji? Well, quite. Is this the remake or the original? Yeah, the remake. It's the I remake. haven't seen it. So good. But I did say, see Made in Manhattan for the first time yesterday. Which... Well, that's not good. It's not great. And no. also, what was Ray Fine thinking? I don't know. <laughs> he must have had a tax bill. That's what I always think. <laughs> <laughs> Probably right. Um, I also, and I don't know if it will be released by the time this podcast goes out, but I was a guest on my brother's movie podcast called The C to Z of Movies, where we discussed our favourite films beginning with S. <laughs> so this little plug for that there, I'll put a link on the, on the, on the page. <laughs> What's your favourite film beginning with S, Rachel? 
Oh gosh, I can't think of anyone thinking with that. <laughs> she's getting a bit more prep time, really, shouldn't we? Yeah. <laughs> well, I shan't say mine because I don't want to spoil the episode. But, um, Keeping but us on tenterhooks. I know, such a such a clickbait. Can you verbalise clickbait? Oh, I know me? what my favourite film is, beginning with S. What's that? Sleepless in Seattle. I love yeah. that film. It makes me cry every time. Does it? <laughs> yeah. I just love Megan Tom. Well, I do love You've Got Mail. Um, that's one, that's like my all-time favourite film. Oh, really? We should watch it together sometime. New York, Books, Tom, Meg. <laughs> Dream come true. Exactly. This is what you're actually doing on holiday, isn't it? Just taking the week off just to watch You've Got Mail over and over again. Yeah, pretty much. It's got <laughs> to the point now, when I, when I was younger, my dad was like, seriously, you can't make us watch this anymore. Um, so <laughs> I like, like, oh, wait, I, I can. Yeah, I was like, no, I can. And now I'm going to move to New York, so I basically get to be Meg. <laughs> How did that pan out? Did you marry Tom Hanks? Sadly, he was already taken. Oh, shame. Yeah. Have you read his short stories? I haven't. Um, no. I don't know how I feel about that. I did read an amusing letter in a newspaper somewhere saying, it's great that Radio 4 is paying attention to first-time short story writers. It can be so hard for them to get attention. <laughs> <laughs> mm, great. <laughs> yes. My thoughts exactly. <laughs> um, so, I think... We can probably come to our teal books decision making moment. Yes. Um, we, we sort of wandered all over the topic of holiday yeah, reading. Sorry. But <laughs> uh, this is what happens when we don't have any preparation time. <laughs> but, um, but yes, difficult or easy? If, if, we, if that's the dichotomy we're going to look at right now, which are you going to pick? I would go for easy. What about I, you? I feel pretentious saying difficult, but I think it's just it's, if I'm going to read a difficult book, then it then I'd rather do it then than any other time. So, Fair enough. Yeah. There we go. Great. Cool. In the second half of today's episode, we'll be looking at two novels by Shirley Jackson, uh, American novelist of the mid-century. Uh, we have always lived in the castle from 1960 something maybe. Yeah. Um, and uh, the haunting of Hill House from the I think late 1950s. Um, Rachel, when did you first read these? I read both of these when I was living in New York, so back in 2010, which is a lifetime ago. Um, <laughs> and I read them because you had talked so highly about uh. them. And um, I was living in America, so I wanted to read American authors, and I borrowed them from the library. And I read the, from, the first one I read was The Haunting of Hill House, because that was the one that was available first. Um, and I thought it was great, so then I wanted to read the next one. Um, and I think actually my first introduction to Shirley Jackson before that was reading the short story, The Lottery. Of course. Which... I've just realised we've not done our little introductions to the books, which we should do, shouldn't we? I know, yes, we should. Um, um, any preference? No, you do what you want and then I'll do. Okay, I'll do We've Always Lived in the Castle because I've read it a few times. Um, and I've only read the other one once. Um, which, so We've Always Lived in the Castle is, um, narrated by is it narrated i think it's first person by uh constance Merricat, um who lives with her sis sorry no Merricat, who lives with her sister yeah. constance and her uncle julian um and they live in the castle on the outskirts of this small town america and you slowly realize that everyone else in their family has died and Merricat's quite a strange little girl or i guess teenage girl who um is quite into casting spells and things or like putting up protective objects around the house uh, and also quite um, bad with strangers and a bit wary of them and her sister is quite protective of her uh, and yes gradually we learn more about why all the rest of the family aren't there and it's mostly just a very atmospheric telling of what it's like being in a slightly strange family who are alienated from the rest of the town um, yeah yeah um, okay so The Haunting of Hill House is uh it's been made into a couple of films actually i think hasn't it mm -hmm. yeah so it's about um there's a house called hill house which is an old mansion and it's known to be a haunted house and everyone thinks that it's evil and there is a doctor called john montague he's a psychologist he's interested in the paranormal and he decides to do an investigation to see whether he can find any actual real evidence of ghostly activity. So he rents the house of the owner and he advertises, uh, he doesn't advertise, sorry, he invites people who 
have claimed to have experienced supernatural phenomena to come and join him in the house for a month to see whether they experience anything. So um, there's only a couple of women who end up accepting the invitation to come. So there's a, a woman called Eleanor Vance who's in her 30s and she's shy, she's a bit strange and she's spent her whole life caring for her mother so she's very sheltered. And then there's Theodora who's like a kind of... Uh, a bit of an it girl really she loves she's beautiful she's kind of light-hearted and like and a free spirit and then there's also Luke the nephew of the house's owner he's uh quite flirty he comes along um and all of them are quite cynical quite skeptical they're like oh nothing's gonna happen mm-hmm. um and then as time goes on stuff does start to happen and Eleanor is the person that everything seems to be happening to and she seems to be centered around but um no one else seems to be experiencing anything. And the question is, is it in Eleanor's head? Is she causing things to happen or is it paranormal activity? And it's, yeah, you know, the, you have to decide really as the, as the reader, what you think. Yeah. So I first read, uh, we've always lived in the castle through that poster book group. I was talking about in the oh, last yeah. episode, yeah. Uh, Lisa, who blogs at blue stocking reader, uh, was one of them. And she, Send it around. And at that point, I hadn't even heard of the lottery, which I know that everyone in America does at high school, but, um, isn't, or certainly wasn't that well known in the UK, I think. Um, uh, which is a sort of famous short story that about, again, about small town America. Um, and yeah, I, I loved the title from the, from the author. I thought we've always lived in the castle as such an atmospheric and intriguing title. Mm. And then, yeah, really loved the book. And I think there was a bit of a break before I read The Haunting of Hill House, which was the next one I read, because at that point, I think those were the only two that were easy to find. And thankfully, Penguin have since brought everything back into print. Um, and I particularly love The Sundial, which is about um, the apocalypse and how everyone in one house will be saved from it, but none of them are particularly bothered about it. It's very, <laughs> very funny. But, um, yeah, um, I don't normally read anything... Uh, approaching horror and I don't think I'll be able to watch the films both of which are called The Haunting I think yeah um, but yeah I, I thought it was quite scary I read it in a youth hostel in Belfast which was intriguing <laughs> <laughs> place to read it but um, yeah, as you say it's all about what's not on the page and I thought um, th- as with the castle it's really interesting the way she uses the creation of the house um, I think I'm right in saying that every angle is slightly off 90 degrees is, is how it's described. Um, so that the inside of the house doesn't quite match up to how you expect the outside of the house to be, etc. And it's all just a bit disconcerting. And that comes across to the reader as well. You feel a bit unsettled just, just going into the house with the characters. Mm. Um, and there's, of course, the scene where uh, there's two people in bed together who are comforting each other from from what might be in the room and they hold hands but when the lights go on you she discovers that there is no one in bed with her (laughs) (laughs) terrifying (laughs) do you ever read sort of scary books normally i think we have talked about that but i can't remember no not really i get um i don't enjoy being scared and i get freaked out quite easily by ghostly things Mm -hmm. Um, so I like things that are tech, like mysteries. I enjoy that, but ghostly stuff, not really. I mean, I've read I, I, a, f- a few of Daphne du Maurier's stories. Like they freak me out. Um, mm. And I probably the scariest book I've read apart from these two would be The Woman in Black, which I do oh, think okay. is genuinely quite terrifying. Um, but no, I tend to avoid. I don't. I'm not like a, the sort of person who would read. Um, you know, kind of horror books or anything like that. I mean, I had my point horror phase as a teenager. Oh, yes, well, me too. As everyone does. Um, but no, nothing. I just don't enjoy that kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think what's, what works in both of these, perhaps particularly we've always lived in the castle, is they're not scary so much as just tense and intriguing. Mm. And that long opening scene where, um, Mary Cat goes out into the small town to buy some groceries or something. Um, which is the opening of We Have Always Lived in the Castle. I think it's just some of the best uh, write, tense writing I've ever read. She's just basically going into these shops and wondering what people are thinking of her, and nothing really happens, but it's so um, evocative of a sense of alienation, but also the reader just thinking, why is, why, what's led to the, what's happening now? Why are you alienated from everyone else? Why yeah. is, 
is it uh, yeah what what have people done what have they done what have you done etc um and yeah I, I, that was what sucked me in straight away because you're sort of you feel automatically on her side but also you don't trust her or trust the family or trust anyone really yeah um it's really clever writing and i guess the same is true of the haunting of hill house you're not quite sure who to believe about anything yes exactly and i think that's what's disturbing about it it's a bit like um the turn of the screw in that way that mm. you are constantly trying to work out as you're reading is there some kind of natural explanation for this at the same time you're trying to work out whether she's crazy whether the rest of them is crazy whether there really is a ghost why that they would be behaving in this way and it's kind of that's what i enjoy about it is even though it's frightening at the same time it really engages you as a reader in in trying to work out what's happening. And because it doesn't provide you with any easy answers, um, you're able to really come to your own conclusion. And I love books like that where you get to make up your own mind and where it's not spelled out for you. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's, it's the idea of putting a sceptic in, in the Hill House is was a really clever idea because mm. it, it makes you... I guess it makes you go on the same journey with her. And this, if it was someone who was very gullible or who completely believed in these things from the outset, then you, then the reader might feel a bit more distance to to, yeah. uh, to Eleanor. Um, yeah, uh, I I read a biography of uh, Shirley Jackson by Ruth Franklin last year, mm. um, which was uh, which was very good in general. Uh, one of the things I hadn't really appreciated before was how bad her agoraphobia was. Oh really? Um, yeah, and I think it's, and I think it does really influence both these books. Uh, the sense of being trapped in the house um, is, yeah, it's it's uh, subverted into different sort of genres or different ways of looking at the house. But once once I knew that she had a re- severe agoraphobia, you can really see the influence of that uh, in the books. I should like to read that actually. I've just looked at Amazon and they've got loads of books by her and amazing covers. Penguin have done some great covers. Mm-hmm. When I move house, perhaps I shall uh, treat myself to the whole lot. Yeah, have you read anything else by Shirley Jackson? No, I haven't. So I'd be really interested to read because the the disturbing nature of the covers suggests that they're all quirky in their own ways. Yeah, she she wrote to very different types of books, and I really love Life Among the Savages and Raising Demons, but they despite the uh, off-putting titles, uh, are actually <laughs> just like domestic memoirs of how, of raising, um, I think she had four children, three or four children. Sort of like, you know, that sort of provincial lady's school of novel. Uh, yeah. Which is uh, really funny, but do have that slightly sinister edge when you know what her actual life was like. Um, yeah. But, and, and, and indeed, they're, they're sort of about being trapped in the house again, but she, but with a different, I guess, rose-tinted glasses on or something. Yeah, and she um, didn't she have an unhappy marriage as well? Yes, it's uh, yeah, it certainly had its ups and downs <laughs> at the very least, and apparently, which Ruth Franklin really does emphasise almost every time <laughs> that the mother is mentioned, a really unhappy relationship with her own mother. Oh right. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. Interesting. So, so oh, you go. I was going to say, in terms of. Uh, comparing the two of them, what would you say were the main differences between the two? Oh, good question. I I think the main difference is for me was that the Haunting of Hill House felt more like it was in that horror genre, even if it's not an out and out horror. If it, it is more sort of they're both quite gothicy in some ways, but um, I think we've always lived in the castle felt more like a, a subverted mystery, I guess. Um, I don't think she really writes genres in the traditional sense, but it is more like a mystery, uh, and the other one's more trying to be scary, is it? Um, yeah. I am one of the few people I know who've read We've Always Lived in the Castle and was surprised by the ending, which I won't spoil now, but I thought it was a great twist, but most people I know who've read it said they could tell what was going to happen from page one. I didn't know where you fell on that scale. No, I remember being quite surprised. Oh, good. I'm glad. <laughs> I think both of us are, uh, can be quite naive in that. <laughs> exactly. We, we, we just take what we're told. Exactly. <laughs> we're, we're just enjoying the readers. story, actually. Exactly, yes. <laughs> um, and I think it is m- more of a... Maybe more of a character piece. Hello, Hargreaves. You're making a lot of noise, aren't you? Yes. Um. <laughs> you're being so good um 
Yeah, I think it's more maybe more of a character piece in that I think the the real strength of it is this astonishing creation of Mericat, which mm-hmm. um, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's the microwave, sweetie. <laughs> I'm gonna be on the floor. <laughs> uh, the creation of Mary. Oh gosh, where am I? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think the characters are great in the other one, but it's maybe more about the experiences and about the house. I don't. Would you agree? Yeah, I think for me, we have always lived in the castle. is is a more psychologically interesting book, mm-hmm. and and a more. Um, it's got more depth to it as a plot and there's a lot more going on beneath the surface. Um, the relationship between the sisters and the, the different motivations that all of them have got and the reasons why they are the way they are, you know, all of that kind of stuff you don't get in the other book. I don't feel like you get as much information about the characters and it, it feels a bit more like you'd like you say, it's like an obvious attempt to make you a successful one, but mm-hmm. just an attempt to make you feel scared and it's the 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 purpose of the book is is to be frightened, whereas the other one it's frightening because the characters are disturbing. Um, whereas the other one is it, the setting is disturbing, but the characters maybe not so much. Yeah, maybe the haunting of Hill House is more about the reader and about the reading experience, mm. and that she's sort of constructing that. Whereas I think we've always lived in the castle. I always felt like an outsider. Uh, looking in, like the, even just the we in the title is um, sort of excluding the reader a bit. And yeah. Mary Mary Cat gives very little away, so you're watching her thinking, what's going on in her mind? Mm-hmm. Why is she, you know, I can't remember what she pins to trees, but she's got all these sort of token things around to yeah. protect the house. Um, and there is an interloper, isn't there? I can't remember his name, but another uncle or cousin, cousin Charles, is it perhaps? Yes, um, cousin Charles. That's it. He turns up and he's you know, trying to change their lifestyle and he wants to change the order of things and and um, Mary Cat's very disturbed by that. And, it, and part of me felt a bit like the Cousin Charles figure coming in and watching this family that has closed ranks and I shouldn't, shouldn't really be there. Yeah. Whereas, I guess, The Haunting of Hill House, I felt more like I'd been invited in as part of this experiment um, and I was watching it unfold with the same sort of unnerved terror of the people in the house. <laughs> <coughs> yeah. I think they're they're both really powerful books, um, and they're both interesting for having been written at the time when they were written. And I think the 1960s and late 50s was a time in it was very uncertain, and there was a lot of distrust between countries. And you get that sense of hmm. of, of life being a very tense and quite frightening place sometimes, and not knowing who people really are and what people's allegiances are and things like that. Um, I think that comes through quite strongly in the books. Yeah, and speaking of being ahead of her time, she also wrote a book called The Bird's Nest, which is uh, essentially about dissociative identity disorder, um, what used to be called a multiple personality disorder, which um, I'm trying to remember, I think the character, main character is called Elizabeth, and she has um, various personalities called Betty and Bess and various different names. Um, And it's it was written before that dissociative identity disorder was even recognised as a medical condition. And it's I don't think it's completely medically accurate, but it's certainly not sensationalised in the way that you might expect it to be before it was properly understood. Yeah. So, yeah, and I don't, I don't think it's a, a condition that she had herself. But, um, but yeah, really interesting that she was writing about that sort of thing that early. So I think she did have a finger on the pulse on you know, um, mental health, at least to some extent. Yeah, it seems to me like she was very interested in mental health and psychology and things like that. I mean, I don't know her, I don't know enough about her life to know whether that was something that she was passionate about, but it seems to me like that, that was her thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think even, even with Mary Cat, who is a very unusual young girl, it doesn't feel exploitative or like we're supposed to judge her or something. She, no. she's in many ways, a sympathetic character, just one that we can't quite access perhaps. Yeah. Um, and as I say, my favourite of hers is The Sundial, and I think that's the one where she brings the um, sort of weird and the haunting and the the unusual and o- overlaps it with the humour that she has in the domestic memoirs in it, because it is, yeah, it's very funny, but also very bizarre. Uh, yeah. And I was very pleased when, when Penguin brought that back into print, so I could start recommending it to people, <laughs> rather than saying, this is a great book you should read, but also it's impossible to get a copy of it. Yeah. 
I'm really annoyed actually because I remember when I was in New York a few years ago, I saw a copy of Life Among the Savages in um, Strand, and it was a beautiful, lovely American edition with a lovely dust jacket. And I didn't buy it for some reason. I think I was like, oh, I can't. I know, and it was probably about five dollars, and um, I've not seen another coffee since. Yeah, I mean, that, I think I can't remember if they republished it or not, but um, I hope you had to get a copy. But no, I have seen the dust jacket of, of at least one American edition. It is rather lovely. Yeah, um, mine is not that edition. <laughs> but this, those are books that I have read several times as well. And she does love a short book, so there you go. Yes, well, there we <laughs> Always go. Always helps. <laughs> does well. I'm going to get some and um, and read them. I think. Yeah, uh, yeah. Her earlier ones, um, "The Road Through the Wall" and "Hangs a Man," uh, I really enjoyed them as well. But also, but they're much more confusing because with <laughs> these, yeah, with these two books we're talking about, there might be strange things going on. But the narrative and the prose is all very straightforward, and it's yeah, you know, the ambiguity doesn't come through the writing style. Whereas those two, um, "Road Through the Wall" and particularly "Hangs a Man." Um, it's not, you know, breaking up sentences or using weird grammar or anything, but it is, um, it is sort of wandering in and out of reality through the prose. And you're never quite sure what's going on and, and whether what the narrator is telling you actually has happened, etc. So it, it's only she conveys an experience well, and it, and you get they're very evocative. But you get to them thinking, I don't know what I've just read, but, <laughs> but I know it was powerful. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and they're making a film of uh, We've Always Lived in the Castle. Oh, really? Do you yeah. know who's going to be in it? Um, oh, I'll just look it up. I hadn't heard of the main two women who are going to be in it. Um, I feel like there was one famous. I think maybe Uncle Char- uh, Cousin Charles is someone famous. Uh, we'll Google it. Here we go. Oh, Sebastian Stan is Charles. I don't know who that is. Did you watch I, Tonya? No, I didn't. Ah, so it's the husband from my Tonya. I think he's also in some superhero thing. But, um, okay. So Mary is being played by hmm, Tessa Farmiga. No idea. And Constance is playing by Alexandra Dadario. Dadario. No idea. I don't know who they are, but Crispin Glover is also in it. So. Yeah. Um, I haven't heard of the rest of them. So, yes, I don't know if it's a... You know, up and coming cast, or if they're very famous and we just don't know who they are. <laughs> but, but, well, uh, yeah, the, we're behind the times, Simon. Clearly, clearly. But, um, but I, I think there has been a bit of a history of trying to film it because it seems when I, when you're reading it, an extremely filmic novel, like it would make a great novel, a uh, great film. Um, but I think there've been a few uh, abortive attempts to do it. So I'm glad that it looks like it is finally going to happen. Though, will it be too scary to watch? I don't know. I don't know. We terrified. Because <laughs> uh, I hear that the haunting films are very scary. Yeah, not my cup of tea, certainly. Yeah, it's a shame, isn't it, when an author I really like so, to read is you know, adapted into films I couldn't possibly watch. <laughs> but I'll try. We've always lived in the castle. I'll, I'll take a cushion with me. Yeah, I know. I, I always like have a scarf. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I it's always think, why can't I just close my eyes? Why do I have to put something between my closed eyes and the it's screen? Because, it's because <laughs> you can't help yourself. I know. It's just in case you open them. My co- my friend who I went to see I, Tonya with laughed at me a lot because it's not even a scary film, it's just a bit of violence in it. Whenever that came on, I'd be hiding behind my hands. <laughs> it's a very good film, though. Uh, but uh, yeah, I didn't see it. Uh, it's Margot Robbie off of Neighbours, was it? No. <laughs> well, you know, I meant to see it, but then this is everything came out at the same time. I saw most of the films that came out then, but... Yeah, Oscar season. I know, oh, it's ridiculous. They need to spread <laughs> it out more. They do. Um, well, yes. Do you want to say anything about the lottery, or should we do our decision? I don't know. Is that, is, can you... I really like the lottery, and I actually use it at school all the time when I teach those kids short stories, and okay. um, they're always really shocked by the ending, and we always talk about it at the end, like, why are we so surprised, and they love that kind of sense of not really being because they see the word lottery and our perception of what a lottery is and what their perception of a lottery is. And, and we always talk about what does it mean and does it really mean anything. And then I always talk to them about what Shirley Jackson said the story was about. And, yeah, they really love it because it's a story that that doesn't have an easy answer and doesn't have an easy conclusion. And for most books that you do at school, 
they, you know, they tend to be quite straightforward in that sense because they're supposed to be easy for kids to write about. Mm. Um, but this is something that isn't easy and you have to make up your mind about what it means. And uh, we look at it from lots of different perspectives. And yeah, I really love teaching it, but I also really love reading it because I think it's, it's a really clever story. And it's also, I think, um, I remember a kid said last year, you've got to be really twisted to write something like that. And I was like, yeah, you kind of have. Um, yeah. And I kind of like that, the fact that her mind must have worked in such a strange and interesting way. Yeah, that was one of the most interesting things, I think, in Ruth Franklin's book was reading about the response to the story. Because, yeah, it was published in the New Yorker, I think, and it was... Um, I think they said it got the most letters in of any yeah. story they'd ever had. And so lots of people were just very angry about the story. And obviously lots of people saying, what does it mean? Um, but so, yeah, some people were very angry that it was there at all. Um, and it does, I guess it is an eye opener on a version of, of small town America, or at least people's perspective of it. Yeah. Because I always think coming from a small community is great. Like I love, I love that everyone knows what everyone else is doing. <laughs> um, but yes, I think particularly, I suppose, if, if you, do you suffer from agoraphobia or, you know, other, um, things? <laughs> I'm wading out of my, what I know about. But, um, but, but if you're not completely comfortable in your home, then I guess living in a small knit community, and she often lived in university communities because her husband was a, was a lecturer. Um, then, yeah, not the easiest places to be. No. Certainly. I wonder how the story went down in the faculty <laughs> um, <in laughs> common room. <laughs> um, Interesting. Yeah. So, decision time. Uh, which of these would you choose? These two novels. I think I would probably go for We Have Always Lived in the Castle because I just think it's got that really interesting characterization, and I was genuinely really surprised by the ending, even if maybe other people weren't. Yes, and for basically exactly the same reasons, I'm going to pick that one too. Um, as, as I've said a couple of times, The Sundial is probably my favourite of hers, but this is the book that set me off wanting to read more of her, and it really is extraordinary. I don't, I don't think I've read any writer quite like Shirley Jackson, and this is a, probably either of them, but particularly We Have Always Lived in the Castle is a great introduction to her, if you've not already not already tried her. Um, yeah. Wow. Cool. Um I can't remember if we agreed on the books for next time or not, but I emailed you about them. <laughs> we... And I probably didn't reply. <laughs> <laughs> you see behind the curtain, listener. Uh, uh, listener Karen suggested we could compare Miss Petticoat's for a day and Patricia Brent Spinster. Um, yes, I haven't read Patricia Brent Spinster, and Patricia Brent Spinster was in my charity bag to give to charity, but subliminally I must have read your email because I took it out of the charity bag today. <laughs> Did so you rescue it? I rescued it. So I will read that this week. Perfect. What was it doing in the charity bag, Rachel? We're going to have words. Well, <laughs> that'll be for when we stop the recording. Shout out to everyone. <laughs> You're painting a terrible picture of me. <laughs> um, well, great. In which case, yes, in the next episode, we will be doing Miss Pettigrew Liz for a Day by Winifred Watson and Patricia Brent Spinster by Herbert Jenkins. Uh, thank you, Karen, for that suggestion. Thank you. And we will speak to you next time. See you next time. Thanks for listening. Bye. You can see a list of all the books and authors we've mentioned at stuckinabook.com or you can look at Rachel's blog at booksnob.wordpress.com and you can support the podcast on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash tea or books where there are various different rewards for different tiers. Many thanks to those who do with special thanks to Randy, Elizabeth and Gracie as always. And we'll speak to you next time. Bye.